Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like more information about this show, please go to Facebook and follow us on The Wonderful World of Wine. So, Kim, have you ever tasted wine on a plane, an airplane? I think I probably have, but I don't really remember much about it. I know I've brought wine back from Europe, but I haven't necessarily consumed a whole lot of wine on airplanes. How about you? I have not. I know I've had a beer on a plane, hmm. um, but we were finding an article here on the Australian news site about air sickness and how it affects tasting wine and storing of wine on airplanes. We always hear from people, and I don't know if this is just anecdotal, but people People will, you know, go on vacation and then they'll bring bottles of wine back and they'll be like, yeah, I got home and the wine just didn't taste as good as it did over there. And we sometimes we kind of poo-poo that in that, oh, well, you were on vacation. So, of course, the wine tasted better because you were relaxed and you weren't thinking about work. But now there's a little bit of information saying that, yes, when you put a wine on an airplane and you fly it, that there is some damage that happens to that bottle. And they call it air sickness. And in the industry, it's actually quite often that you'll go to a taste and they'll say, well, we just got this in, so we're going to let it sit for a while because it's altitude sickness. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a different problem than actually consuming a wine in an airplane. So there's kind of two sides to this coin. It's the the transport of wines for consumption on the ground, but on the other side of the ocean versus taking wine up into an airplane to be consumed on the airplane. So first, I think we should talk about this drinking wine on an airplane and what what is the, the flavor change that take place and what is needed in order to have a good tasting wine up in the air. Yeah, because I think that's more important than the actual shipping of a wine on the plane because that's probably not as common nowadays mm-hmm. uh, with with, air, with sea transportation. But two of the factors they were saying drinking on the plane is the vibration and the the temperature. What did you take on on that? I thought it was very interesting, the the temperature temperature thing, and also the dryness. So the humidity in the airplane is very different than it is on the ground. So this article was explaining that because it is so dry, it uh, makes your nose and your palate uh, react differently, and that your, your nose just can't process everything that's going on in the wine in the same way as it can on the ground. So wines need to be strong stronger flavored and they need to be much more aromatic in order for you to have a positive experience with the wine. And they stated you don't need to swirl or aerate the Uh, wine. That was completely new to me. I thought that was very, very interesting. But their reasoning for that was that the air is exchanged so frequently in a plane Mm -hmm. and moving so much already, you don't have to do that. So it's like the air is already moving around your wine. So you don't have to move your wine through the air. The air is already doing it for you. No, I've never even seen, I'm sorry to say, I've never seen even served is what is it served in on a plane? Is it those little mini bottles? Is it cans? I've seen mostly little like little plastic bottles. So individual s- serving bottles. Right. So I mean that the vessel itself. You were talking about temperature. They say that the whites and the reds are always in the refrigerator on a plane, mm-hmm. so, which I can see as a positive because usually refrigerators will be humidity 
controlled. So that can, I think, extend the life of the wine, especially if it's in a bottle that's corked. But if you're talking about a little plastic bottle, yeah, there are different different things to take into consideration. So the cork won't dry out, but you still need to consume those relatively quickly because oxygen can get through the plastic. So it's a, it's a whole different number of factors to take into consideration when companies are thinking about having their wines on an airplane. So if it's a red, just let it let it heat up a little bit. Right. More. So let it warm up because you don't really want to drink your whites too cold. But a little a little cool is not bad for red wines. I don't know how common drinking the wine on the plane is. I mean, I've flown many times and I have not seen too many people drinking wine. Maybe because you don't fly first class. Yeah. That, well, that's probably I'm, a lot I'm, more wine I'm in first class. Not flying first class. But, but you know, I, you always see commercials of people, you know, drinking champagne in first class on, on a flight. And it makes me wonder, like, what, what do the bubbles do? Yeah. You know, if there's true. all these other problems of things going on in your wine and that, oh, it needs to be more aromatic and you need to worry about this and that. It's like, well, how does it affect the bubbles? Like, I'm pretty curious about that. Yeah. And it's most of the time you hear people drinking on the plane is to calm their nerves. So they're doing a shot and they're not right. even thinking about wine. It's like have but, some vodka instead I'm in of first a glass class, of wine. Yeah. Champagne. Yeah. Please, maybe you right? want some champagne. So let's talk about the other side of it where an importer would ship wine on a plane. Right. I think this is where that vibration thing comes into play. So we know from experience that you, you need to handle wine relatively carefully so that you don't shake it up too much and you don't damage it. So this is why we say don't store your bottles of champagne long term in the refrigerator because over time the vibrations, uh, not only will it eliminate the bubbles, but it will start to break down the wine and the relationship between the acids and the fruit and all the other things that that go on in the wine and it'll start to fall apart a little bit. So this is the main concern with transporting wine by airplane is that the, all those mini vibrations for however many hours you have that bottle on the plane can do some damage structurally to the wine. I don't think it's very common. I hear a lot if a winemaker is coming on a plane, they might bring a couple bottles for people to sample. But the actual shipping of wine this is very, very rare. Years ago, you may recall, Kim, the Beaujolais Nouveau, they would fly it over on the plane. That's exactly what extra. I was thinking. Yeah, but they were- a ton of money just to get it here right. overnight, and then people were enjoying it the next day. So the whole sickness thing was kind of strange with Nouveau, right. different style of wine. But I have gone to a few industry tastings. I don't know if you have that someone would say, oh, this just came in. We're going to let it sit. And you're like, why? Why do you want to let it sit? Right. Mm-hmm. So you don't understand the sickness thing, but it is a real thing to a wine. Right. I, I feel like I've heard that many, many times from people who are pouring at tastings and they were having to explain that oh, it might not taste really right, you know, or it, it might not taste like it's going to taste in a couple of weeks or a couple of months because it was just on an airplane. So when you flew to Italy and brought back wine, did you store it or did you notice any difference if you had it too soon? Or well, I don't think we drank it for at least a few months, maybe a year. So I didn't really notice that anything bad had happened to it, but it was dessert wine that we brought back. So it was, I think, a little bit more, say, structurally sound, but it was it was a heftier wine and it had more alcohol and it had kind of more going on. So I didn't notice that there was any you know problem with it falling apart. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us at franklinliquors.com and vinitaswineworks.com. Ran across an interesting article in Decanter the other day about when you should be drinking non-vintage champagne. So just as a little explanation, if you have a bottle of champagne that doesn't have a date on there, it doesn't have a year of vintage on there, we that is what we refer to as non-vintage champagne, which means that it is the house style, a lot of champagne 
champagne houses will try to make a consistent style year in, year out. So kind of like a bottle of Coca-Cola. If you are expecting a certain style from a house, say, like Moet or Veuve Clicquot, they're trying to make something that all the time you can go pick up a bottle of that wine from the shelf and it will taste like you're expecting it to taste. This is a very common question. I'm sure you get a lot as well, Kim, is someone will say, I, I've got a bottle of champagne as a gift or a sparkling wine as a gift. How long can I hold it for? When should I drink it? And it's hard to answer a lot of times because you don't know, they don't know if it's vintage or non-vintage. So you don't know yourself a date range. Right. Because there's nothing on that bottle that will tell you how old that wine is. It's so frustrating. It's very it? frustrating. If, you, if you've got a bottle of Chardonnay from 2012, you know that those grapes were picked in 2012 and that wine was probably bottled in 2013, 2014 at the latest. But if you just have a non-vintage bottle of Louvre Clicquot, you don't know when that could have been put in the bottle. That could have been bottled 15 years ago. That could have been bottled last year. You really don't have any way of knowing. And as a retailer, it's very frustrating because if I order a case of champagne, a non-vintage, I get it. I don't know how long that's been sitting in the distributor's warehouse. I don't know if it was a missing case they found and they shipped to me because then you come to me and buy it. I'm assuming it's fresh. Right. So it, let's, let's talk about if they do put a date, there's, there's a term called disgorgement of a sparkling wine. Can you just explain what that is? And if there was a date on a bottle, usually that's what it would be besides vintage. Sure. So champagne and other sparkling wines made in the method of champagne is a, a rather long and involved process. So it's a two or three step process where first a base wine is made, which is kind of, you know, tastes like your typical old Pinot Grigio. And then what happens is that wine is put into thicker bottles and then more sugar and more yeast is added, which is what creates the bubbles. So that bottle is capped. And then that wine sits for a good long time so that the yeast eats the sugar, creates alcohol and carbon dioxide. And then because you're in an enclosed bottle, that carbon dioxide redissolves in the wine and that's what creates the bubble. Now what happens is that once the yeast dies, it all settles to the bottom and you have a sediment and you want to get rid of that sediment before you sell that. So a lot of champagne houses will sit on that wine for a year and a half, two years, and then they will get rid of the sediment, they'll pop it out, and then they'll recap it, and then that will go in their next shipment to be sold. That is the disgorgement. So you might have a younger champagne where they'll disgorge, and then they will put it ready to distribute and sell and get into the stores and restaurants. Other times, they will hold on to the wines and not disgorge it until they are really ready to sell it. So in the first instance, they might be doing a whole big batch. They disgorge them all at once and then they are sold to a particular distributor and then that might sit for a fairly long amount of time. But if you have a, sometimes you have, you have a better bottle, they will disgorge on demand. So say a particular distributor needs a certain amount or there's a special restaurant that needs a batch of it. There, those will be specially disgorged and then you know that that is a more, I would say, recent product. I, yeah. you so can, the vintage date could be 10 years old. It could be a vintage 2003, 2005, but the disgorgement date could be yesterday. Right. So it's important to know those dates. A lot of the companies for non-vintage will use codes. The big guys will put a code of when it was actually disgorged and when it was bottled. But there's no key or anything to tell us what that code means. You yeah. have to work for that corporation to know what that code is. I was so. going to ask if there is an easy way for people to, you know, maybe turn the bottle over and, you know, figure out from that code how old or how young that bottle is. And you can taste, uh, we've gone through this a few times, we've done a tasting and we'll use a certain sparkling wine and then you taste it and you just feel like it's off. It's just not as fresh. Mm -hmm. And they did mention some dates here about when to drink and they recommend
recommended three years after date. Are they saying after the disgorgement date or after the vintage date? I think they're probably saying vintage date because otherwise you don't know. I mean, if you don't know the disgorgement date, then you don't know. So So, I would say that they would say three years from when you bought that. So then if someone gets a gift and it's a 2012, they they should drink it by 2016. My rule of thumb for people is vintage champagne. So ones that do have a vintage date on the label, you can hold for a little bit longer. But if it's a non-vintage champagne, I would say drink it up sooner rather than later. You really don't want to sit on that for too long. One of the problems is the cork itself. That isn't going to last a really, really long time. It can dry out and then you lose your bubble. So I do advise people to drink their sparkling wine sooner rather than later. Yeah, so one year is for a non-vintage. That's, you figure by the time it's it's bottled at the winery, shipped the mm-hmm. distributor, then it goes to the retailer. I mean, it has to be pretty quick. It does have to be pretty so, quick. This is why I advise people don't sit on your sparkling wine and only use it for celebrations. Drink it on a random Saturday or small celebrations like, I don't know, Valentine's Day. Yeah, and I think the good tip that you gave was if you're sitting on it for a long time, and if you're storing it properly, you probably get a little bit longer out of it. But once you pop that cork, if you notice it's not mushroomed out, it's very shriveled up and small, then it's probably going to be not as fresh as it, as it should be. Would you agree? I agree. Oh. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you would like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. If you'd like more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. Food and Wine magazine had an interesting article, 25 bottles to drink to become a wine master. And Kim, I have a lot of problems with this article. You know, the wine master thing, the only 25 bottles. Uh, what was your initial take? Yeah, that I had that same sort of initial reaction to it. Like, how can you really learn about wine when you're only talking about 25 bottles? But I think the concept, you know, you have to start somewhere if you don't know anything about wine and you really want to learn about it, where do you start? And this, I think this concept is very interesting because it doesn't start from the idea of let's read a book about wine or let's let's take a class about wine. It immediately starts with let's drink some wine. I didn't necessarily agree with all the wines that they chose for it, to, for it to have you taste, nor the order that they wanted you to taste in. But I sort of like the concept of it starts with what the wine tastes like. So that I kind of like. Yeah, I like that it was a guide to how to learn wine. And many times people say you have to taste to learn. It's it's not a book thing. It's a taste. So you're building up a mental library of what something tastes like. I guess the first thing I didn't like about this recommendation was number one was the cost. To, to do what they were saying here to taste was a thousand dollars in wine costs. A lot of people just can't do that to, to explore wine. Mm-hmm. The second thing was that they didn't mention building up like an aroma memory before a taste memory. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, it was just what it, what are the wines taste like? I agree with you about the cost. I get this question often where people will ask, how much should I spend for a bottle of wine? My sweet spot is 12 to 25. I think you really can get good quality, unique tasting wines in a number of different styles from all over the world that really 
really can show you what is typical, you know, a typical California Chardonnay, a typical Bordeaux, a typical sparkling wine from, say, northern Italy, and you don't have to break the bank. Anything less expensive and you're a little kind of sketchy with inexpensive wines and then any more than that, yes, you generally are getting high quality wines, but they might not be in the window where they're tasting their best. So yeah, the the thousand dollar price tag for this, I thought was a little a little high as well. Now, I thought the method of how he explained to go through everything, he would he would tie you with a champagne and then to buy different styles of champagne to learn the styles. I thought that was good. And there was a lot of other things, people in the past who've done this thing, like Andrew Emmer had a whole, you know, seven wines and noble wines. What would you recommend as an educator, how someone should start or what grapes or what wines? Mm-hmm. If you just want to start, what would you recommend? Well, I certainly wouldn't say start with a bottle of champagne personally, because I find that champagne is a bit of an acquired taste. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to drink, but I don't think it's an easy thing for people who are just starting out tasting wine. Most people, if they've never had wine before and want to start learning about it, your palate is going to be more drawn towards the sweeter, the fruitier, the lighter. You are not going to be able to jump right into Bordeaux or right into Champagne or right into Barolo because those things are a little bit more of an acquired taste. It's like if you've never had coffee before, we're not going to start you on espresso. No, you're going to start with, uh, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, regular, and then build up the, the palate for those more bitter flavors that you expect in coffee. So I would start people with more New World style wines. So I would start people off with California Chardonnays and Rieslings and fruitier reds and then be like, okay, this is more their old world equivalent. So these are your Cabernets and your Merlots from California. Now let's try a Bordeaux. Now that you understand what the flavors of those grapes are all about, I'm going to now show you how a different place impacts those particular grape varieties. There's so many different teaching methods to start with the wine. And and I agree with a lot of what you say and go by. Um, Thing we always go back and you always say it a lot is to understand dry or sweet. But one of the big things for me is understand what's fruity, what's oaky, what's earthy sweet and dry. Those are the main things. If you don't understand your how you detect that or how you can explain what you're tasting that way, then I feel like tasting all these other wines doesn't matter. Right. And you you're not that. going to remember them either. If you don't have a way to put it into words so that it gets stuck in your memory, you're not going to remember what those wines are all about. And then you're not going to be able to compare them to other things and figure out what you like, why you like it, what you don't like, and why you don't like it. So being able to put your finger on things that appeal to you I think is very, very important. Yeah, and I, that's why I go back to the aroma as well. If you cannot smell a fruit, then chances of you tasting that fruit is very slim. Right. And especially when you're starting out, you don't have to be able to be like, I smell mandarin orange or I smell peach versus nectarine. You know, you can, you can start out simply by being like, I smell fruit versus I smell oak versus I smell flowers or I smell something that reminds me of vegetables. It doesn't have to be super specific specific, but just being able to put your finger on some of the basics and then the flavor things too. It's like, okay, this is what we mean by a wine that has high tannins. This is what we mean by a wine that is sweet. So it has some sugar in there and isn't completely devoid of sugar. You know, those those basics are a really good place to start and then they're stepping stones to the next levels.
You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find out more information about me at my website, vinitaswineworks.com, and you can find more information about Mark at franklinlickers.com. Today, we wanted to introduce you to a style of wine that people talk about a little bit more in the winter months than in the summer months, and it's called ice wine. There was a very interesting and thorough article I found on uh, winesearcher.com talking about the different styles of ice wine that are out there, how they're made, the little bit of the history and development of them, and why they generally are more expensive than other wines out there on the market. Do you have much experience with ice wine, Mark? I I love the whole process and the whole theory behind the ice wines. And I think as we're in the industry, we we get to taste a lot of these. And it's it's, a lot of people don't. And you probably don't see them in too many stores or on too many wine lists. Do, Do you, Kim, see them around? No, I mean, every once in a while. And there are producers from Germany, producers from Austria. But a number of the ones that we see here are actually from Canada. So we really are lucky that there are a couple of really good producers, mostly from the Niagara region, that produce really delicious ice wines, both from Riesling grapes and then from a hybrid grape called Vidal that is grown locally here and then also quite widely through New York State. Let's talk a little bit about the process of what happens here. The, the grapes are grown and then instead of being picked at the normal harvest time, they're left on the vine until they shrivel up, get pretty diseased or shriveled and they're frozen. In some countries, they can't pick these grapes now until it reaches, I think, 17 degrees or below. Right. So it's dead of winter. It's in the snow. Then they go out and, and pick these grapes and they're very shriveled, which leads to very concentrated, very little amounts of fruit. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's like most harvest takes place, at least up here in the Northern Hemisphere. They'll pick any time between August and October. But for ice wine, because what happens is that the all the water in the grape has to be allowed to freeze and freeze pretty hard. They're not harvesting until like January or February. So it's pretty cool to see these frozen bunches of grapes that then have to be harvested in the cold and pressed in the cold. And all that water that is frozen stays behind and all that's pressed out of that grape is maybe just a few drops of frozen juice that are that's super concentrated. So it has all this flavor and all this sugar and nice high acidity. And yeah, you get tiny little quantities, but it's very delicious. And typically served in a half size bar or 375 milliliter bottle. I saw it said three kilograms of grape for one 375 milliliter so of wine. six pounds of grapes to make one small bottle one of wine. Jar. Like no wonder they're expensive. And if you haven't had it, at first it's a shock to the system because it is sweet. Mm-hmm. But it is a good food pairing wine for say desserts that are as sweet or sweeter right. as the wine, correct? So it's sweet, but it's still balanced because you're not just only getting the sugar out of those grapes. I mean, yes, the water is being left behind, but you're still getting all those other flavor compounds and you're getting that nice high acidity. If they're making a red wine, because there is some red ice wine out there, you get a little bit of tannin, but you, it's like this just concentrated, really yummy candy in a glass almost. Yeah, so just think of the, the process behind this, that the winemaker or the grower has to leave these things. So they're right. losing that production. Then they have to protect it from the weather. They have to protect it for birds and animals eating it. Yeah, the animal it's thing is there. big. It's um, sitting there for so long. I mean, they probably lose half of that crop to animals. Mm-hmm. And this is not, and this is a relatively, I would say, modern style of wine. The first documentation of ice wine being made was in the mid-1800s. So like yeah, 1829, 1830 was the earliest vintage of ice wine. And it seems that- mistake? Probably another <laughs> mistake. But, you know, they also needed a little bit of technology in order to get to this point. So they had to have appropriate netting 
to keep the birds off, ways that there were other animals that they had to be protected from. So sort of a, a, a newer style, even though it's hard to think that there are wine styles that are newer than others, but very, uh, very cool. So once again, we are in the wine world here. There are little tricks that can be played, right? So the typical ice wine, the grapes are frozen on the vine. It's it's government usually control the wind to pick it. But there's another method called the cryo method, Kim. Are right. you familiar with this? I am. So this is, I don't want to say it's artificial ice wine, but the grapes are picked and then frozen. How do you and, not and think that's pressed. not artificial? Well, <laughs> they're me. not like, I mean. If it's cryo. But they're putting them in a freezer. They're not dehydrating them in a machine. So or... they pick them at the normal harvest yeah. time and then they set them aside in a freezer. Almost like right. how people make a lot of the fruit wines around right. here. They right. freeze the, the and, berries. And you, you see this for like some cider production and things like that too, where, where the juice will be frozen and then and then pressed. So you've got higher levels of alcohol or higher flavor compound levels and, and things like that. So yeah, I can, okay. I, I guess I can see that it's it's artificial and that they're well, not I, being I left. Concede, but now no. I, I want, so. <laughs> it's more, I would say, um, m- m- techno- technological with- manipulation and not necessarily artificial. So the cost say. comes down. The they cost definitely comes less. down. So if yeah. you see t- two ice wines on a wine list or a wine shelf and one's 25 and one's 15, you know why typically it's probably the method that it was made. But it's still going to be a little expensive to make that ice wine because you are leaving so much of the water behind and the water is the bulk of what is making up your wines. So if a, a regular glass of, say, Chardonnay is 85% water or 86% water, that glass of Chardonnay ice wine is going to be significantly less so they can get fewer bottles out of that same cluster of grapes. There's other versions of ice wine you'll see as well. There's other grapes. I've had uh, Cab Franc, the red mm-hmm. grape, which is always very good for me. And I've also had apple ice wine. Ooh, that sounds good. Which I think is phenomenal. So that'd be more of a cider? How can they call it an ice wine if it's made from apples? I think it's the process they're saying. Oh, it's, okay. So they freeze the apples and then press yes, the apples? Yes, oh. well, it's fermented. So apple, I mean, fruit wine. So yeah, you can that's call true. It wine. That's true. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World. Thank you for joining us this week. <laughs>